Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The Secretary of State, as grotesque and horrific as the results of his decisions are, they are legal decisions. And that goes for CEOs of carbon-burning companies and so on and so forth. But the violence in our legally constructed system is so bad. I mean, the suffering's already here, and the resistance is beginning. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is one of my favorite shows of the year, but but to set it up, I want to begin actually with some math, some basic climate math, and, and I've pulled these numbers from our world in data. So in 2018, global CO2 emissions using both energy here and land use were about 42 billion tons. Now, if we're going to keep warming under two degrees Celsius, which is what the Paris Accords promise, which is what all the science says we really have to do to avoid just unbelievably catastrophic outcomes, well, then global emissions, they need to fall by half, by half, by 2040. And if we want to keep warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius, which would be safer by a lot, well, we need to cut emissions by about 98% by 2040, 98%. So almost completely. Now I want to add in some basic political math. Joe Biden has won the presidency. You may have heard the election is over. Democrats will retain control of the House, although not by much. The the likeliest Senate outcome is a Republican majority, narrow, but still. The best possible Democratic outcome, if Democrats win both seats in Georgia, is a 50-50 split where Vice President Kamala Harris can break party-line tie votes. But she can't break them unless every Democrat votes the same way, which means West Virginia's Joe Manchin, who is proudly, proudly from coal country and votes like it, unless he votes with the Democrats. So to just state the obvious here, the political math and the climate math do not balance out. We are not going to get the legislation we need as fast as we need to get it. And that is just America. It is to say nothing of China and India, where coal use is rising. It is to say nothing of Brazil, where they are clear-cutting rainforests. We're not in good shape here. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a week after Thanksgiving. I'm sorry. But my job here is not to comfort you or me. It's to be honest, we are not on track to stop this. And every year that we dither and that we fail, every year in which emissions rise again, the math gets harder until the equation becomes functionally insolvable. And we have to give up on the world we had hoped our children would inhabit. Maybe that's already happened. Maybe that's already happened. But but let's be clear about the stakes before we get fatalistic. Millions will die. 
millions and millions and millions will die. Countless more will be displaced, starved. They'll be caught in heat-driven conflict or drought-driven famine. We are consigning a countless number of people to unbelievable suffering beyond anything we're going through right now with coronavirus. This is the state of mind I've been in uh, reading Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future. Robinson, if you don't know him, he's one of the greatest living sci-fi writers. He's probably best known for the Red Mars trilogy, but in recent years, he's become undoubtedly the greatest writer of what people now call cli-fi, climate fiction. And Ministry for the Future is in that lineage of his work. It is imagining a future, God, it is imagining a future that felt realer than our present to me. It's a future where we don't stop climate change until tens of millions die. But it's also a future in which those deaths do spur a kind of global response. I mean, Robinson is a science fiction writer. He understands humanity and civilization as dynamic, as an organism, as, as, as non-static. And so then what happens is not some idyllic political response where all the nations of the world you know, regretfully join forces to do what they should have done 20 years before. It's a very human response. Some nations begin geoengineering without asking permission. Eco-violence arises as people begin to experience unchecked climate change as an act of war against them. And then they respond in kind using new technologies to hunt those they blame. Capitalism ruptures, changes, is remade. In a way, it is a fundamentally optimistic book. It's a book about a vision of a kind of ultimate success, but it is a horrible kind of success, a success with with a body count, a success where so many moral lines have to be crossed. And yet, if, if I could get policymakers everywhere to read just one book this year, it would be this book, no doubt about it. It is, I'm not saying it is the best book of the year or even the best book I read this year on some technical story level. I'm not enough of a book critic to, to make that claim. But it is the most important one I read. It is the one that helped me imagine and fuel the future most clearly. And that's because, I don't know a simpler way to put it than this, it takes our present more seriously than we do. We live in, uh, many of us anyway, in a kind of haze where we refuse to admit the truth of what we are doing and the inevitability of what we are calling down upon ourselves in the future. And this book doesn't do that. So, this conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson, it was fantastic. You, you you will hear it. But it's not a substitute for reading the Ministry of the Future. It's preparation for it. And then, of course, reading his book isn't a substitute for actually preparing for the future. We have to actually do that. It doesn't have to get this bad. These don't have to be our choices. This is a conversation about choices that I don't even like talking about. We, we, we go here places I was a little bit afraid to go. But I think we have to, to, to make them feel real to keep them from being the only choices we end up having left. As always, my email is replyandshowatbox.com. Here is Kim Stanley Robinson. Kim Stanley Robinson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ezra. Good to be with you. So the phrase that kept occurring to me as I read the book was that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, that, that old <laughs> adage. The book seems to me to be this effort to do the reverse, which is to imagine the end of capitalism as a way of preventing the end of a livable world. Why is it so hard to imagine the end of capitalism? Well, it's the law of the land. It's international. And everybody living has always lived in it. The 20th century alternatives and uh, China today, Cuba today, the socialist or communist experiments or the state socialism. I mean, everybody has a sense of the kind of catastrophic history of the 20th century. Uh, but by and large, it's a capitalist world. And that's what we mean when we talk about 
the neoliberal order or globalization. And because it's everywhere and everybody's grown up in it, it tends to feel like nature itself. And it feels massive, unchangeable. And to imagine alternatives is just to imagine impossibilities. What would it take to change? And when you ask yourself that, you you quickly get into scenarios that seem too unlikely to come true. So even though in many ways it's it, it looks brittle, it looks fragile, it looks unsustainable, it looks like it can't go on, and things that can't happen won't happen, but how we would uh, get out of it, how we would change it without catastrophe, those are uh, hard things to uh, imagine in any plausible way. So we say it's hard to imagine the end of capitalism. And also questions of human nature come up because it, it begins to seem like um, capitalist humanity is is simply humanity. And older examples of humanity are not currently existing in very big numbers anywhere on the planet. So it's like saying we would have to change human nature. And that, of course, gets into the question of what really is human nature and isn't it historical? And if we had a different moment or a different political economy, wouldn't human nature itself also change? And so all these questions come in at once and the mind kind of collapses under the under the strain of all of that speculation and piled together from different areas of our lives. It was such a striking object lesson for me reading the book. And I want you to know the book had a really profound impact on me and the way I've been thinking since reading it. But one of the things that was saddening to me reading it was the parts that were about disaster, the parts that were imagining catastrophe were really easy for me to live in. It just made total sense. Of course, that is what is going to happen. And the parts that we're imagining the way we would respond, the way the world would get better, it was striking to me how hard it was for me to put myself in the reality of that moment. And yet, of course, humanity is an adaptive system. Of course, we will change. Of course, we will respond to things. Of course, giant levels of catastrophe will change societies just as they have all the times before. But I'm, I'm curious if it felt that way to you. Was it Was it harder to imagine humanity responding positively to climate crisis and to imagine climate crisis itself? Or was that just my experience of it? Well, I would say it was hard. And certainly some of this comes down to how novels work and how narrative works. So that if you say, I'm going to tell you the story of the day where everything went to hell, because it got so hot that people die even in the shade. Well, you can narrate that, and everybody's used to those conventions of narration. It's like telling your life. It's like what I did in the book very often. It's like eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts are compelling. We're used to them, and they're dramatic. And people are only asked to give an eyewitness account for something that happened that you have eyewitnesses. So then the other story... Well, there are um, many millions of scientists and technocrats and bureaucrats who uh, go to work every day to add one increment, which, or maybe they'll lose an increment that day, but over the next five years, they will have made the world one one thousandth of a percent better because they managed to 
figure out this detail of how insects depend on frogs and so on and so forth, or why the universe began the way it began. This massive integrated or even unintegrated work. And really the novel and eyewitness accounts and narrative are never good at describing work. So uh, when you try to tell a story about even an individual's work life, say in a novel, this is a famous absence in novels, is the ability to come to grips with someone's work life, and yet it's central to all of us. So novels are about personal life or when things go wrong. So when you try to talk about the social work of uh, in science, technocracy, bureaucracy, government, and all the rest of the things we do, well, you, you lose your grip on the ability to tell that story. So I, but I wanted to anyway. So um, you can see when you read the book, the variety of modes that I pulled in and tried to orchestrate. So it became a kind of chorus of voices and something uh, orchestral, you might say, rather than solo. So very many novels are in first person. That's a kind of solo performance. And I love them myself. But this particular novel is a kind of a orchestrated chorus of lots of different kinds of voices in lots of different modes to see if I could call up in the mind of the reader a sense of that broad kind of unnarratizable work that gets done. That if you want to imagine the world getting better or getting through this century without a mass extinction event, the amount of work and things going right that has to happen is is vast and complicated. And really, it's not a good topic for a novel, but if once you decide to give it a try, then the novel is a very capacious form. And sometimes there are formal experiments in novels that try to make structures that evoke the totality like that. I would say John Dos Passos in his USA trilogy of the 1920s was one of these attempts and it's been a big uh, inspiration to me. So that's what I was trying to do there. And yeah, it's hard, but it's interesting. And and it does allow you to try something different. And at this point in my career, trying something different is is one of the crucial parts for me. It's what makes it interesting to me. What was striking to me about the effect that that strategy had was that it, I don't even know if I can explain this correctly, it ended up presenting or creating a picture of humanity as a system. And it struck me as a novel about systems in relationship to each other, the biosphere system, the like biophysical system. You have parts where you narrate from the perspective of a carbon atom and then humanity. And what was helpful for me as somebody who thinks about political systems was the novel simply seemed to me to be built on a very obvious premise when you think backwards from it, which is that when things happen, the human system is going to change in response and different kinds of reactions are going to come forward. If it happens to a particular country, like it does to India at the beginning of the novel, India will react in a very different way than any country is right now because they will have gone through this terrible event and that in response, that'll change how others react. And I'd like to hear you talk a bit about this in general because it's threaded through a couple of your recent books. I think a lot of climate literature and a lot of climate rhetoric portrays climate change as a potential end. Unchecked climate change is a like an unlivable planet, the end of humanity. 
And your novels are very much about adaptation. Not that we will manage to avert unchecked climate change, but when it comes, we will begin to adapt in ways that are good and and bad, and not just technologically, but but socially too. What is your model of humanity? And, and, and how do you think about when you try to imagine how human beings would adapt, what forms a basis for your for the mental experiment you run there? Wow. Well, I guess you would say that I used a lot of tools out of what might be called eco-Marxism and also tools out of what you might call sociobiology. If you're getting to these deepest fundamental questions, which is really what you're talking about here, I tried to think about what the social sciences have told us about civilization, also political science and political economy. But I'm really interested in diving deeper and doing a kind of materialist work. It's very leftist in its political orientation. It's dialectical and materialist in in its philosophical methods and uh, assumptions. And these, uh, what you're really asking about is kind of the axioms of one's thought, the fields of inquiry that you think are giving the most productive results for thinking about where we're at. So yeah, humanity is, a let's call it civilization, and it's a global civilization. Everybody on the planet is integrated into one large system that we can call civilization, but that exists in a biosphere, Earth's biosphere, that has a certain energy exchanges and certain productive capacities that we can't ignore. I often call uh, the Earth system our extended body, so that or that say that we're like jellyfish are in the sea. The the border between you individually as a human and the larger society, and then the planet's biosphere are permeable borders, and they're all enmeshed together. So, you know, you take care of the bacteria on the bottom of the sea, and you're taking care of some distant digit of your own body, some part of your skin or something. And that by use of that metaphor, I I try to look at the totality in ways that are both um, ecological, like energy flows, and then also political, like laws. And they both are are crucial. We set up laws that order the way that we act with each other and how we behave and what we consume and what we produce. And then that interacts with the biophysical system that is our extended body that's supporting us. And the system that we're in now is systematically getting rewarded for damaging parts of our own body, like chopping off your feet in order to fly for a month, but at the end of that month, you don't have any feet left to walk. And so in that inquiry, the novel is maybe one of the best artistic forms to try to take on all that at once. I mean, better than, say, a piece of sculpture or a painting, because it's also uh, a novel is so conceptual and filled with meanings and systems and patterns. So it's capacious and capable, but hardly any individual human mind or individual human work of art is capable of taking on all of that totality at once. And here's where I'd make a little pitch for science fiction, because science fiction was always about the relationship of people and planets. That was one of the things that it did. Not only were you setting stories in the future and saying, we could become this or we could become that, you know, you could have a disaster or you could have a utopia, but also 
going out there saying, wow, if you're a person on a planet that's entirely icy or a person on a planet that has no water, then you get these narratives that are uh, epic, you might say, about the relationship between humans and a, and a planet. So science fiction has this inherent historical uh, gift or capability to uh, say, look, okay, novels aren't very good at dealing with um, giant global issues, but I'm a science fiction writer, and we always talk about global issues, and there are some tools there that can be brought to bear. So I've been pleased at the ability of my genre to apply itself to the situation that we're in now. I, I want to pick up on the idea of eco-Marxism there. So I'd mentioned earlier this this old line, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And, and when I Googled it to try to remember who it was from, it's often given to or uh, attributed to Frederick Jameson, the Marxist scholar, who then I noticed that your book is dedicated to, and, and, and I found out he was your PhD advisor. So tell me a bit about what you learned from Frederick Jameson. Uh, well, Fred Jameson is a friend of mine um, and one of my most crucial teachers. I've been very lucky in my teachers, but he is fundamental to my orientation to the world, what he would call cognitive mapping. And I think he himself has said that phrase, the end of the world, easier to imagine than the end of capitalism, is something that he heard uh, Zizek or someone else in Europe say, that he doesn't claim to have originated the phrase, and he doesn't care about originating phrases. He's a unusually modest great philosopher in that there isn't so much a Jamesonian system as him always using everything at hand to build a flexible and uh, creative uh, Marxism. And the eco-Marxism is not his thing, and he's, uh, I think, taking it on and adapting it to it as he has to everything else that's happened in his lifetime in terms of intellectual moments. And eco-Marxism, I think, comes from a, a group of younger scholars who um, heavily influenced by Jameson's way of reading history and said to uh, Fred and to uh, Adorno and to the whole world, if you're going to be a good materialist, you have to pay attention to the biosphere that supports us. And it's not as malleable as Marx and Engels thought. It's not infinite. You can't science your way out of the problem, which is very suspiciously what Marx and Engels would sometimes say about the, the power of humanity to create freedom out of necessity. They maybe overrated humanity's power, or science's power in the end, in some of their writing. I wouldn't want to be too simplistic about this. But the eco-Marxists are saying, let's keep the Marxism, but include the planet, include the living biosphere as a kind of a, a working class, you might say, another class, um, but in any case, a political actor. So there, they're, they're taking on actor network theory of Bruno Latour and others. They're saying, yeah, the the bacteria, I mean, it's 50% of the DNA in any human body, um, and the bacteria are more numerous than us and are part of the creation of our food chain. Therefore, they have to be part of the political process. They have to have representation in the laws of the, of the world. Well, this is uh, transformative, and, it, and when you uh, use it as a lens by which to read human history so far— you see a lot of things that you didn't see before when you just considered nature to be something other than us and something that we could dominate and use for our purposes uh, with no limits on that. 
it becomes clearer that we were in a kind of carbon bubble when we thought all of these uh, Promethean thoughts. And now that burning carbon looks to be actually uh, wrecking us in various ways, the rethinking, this is also very Jamesonian, the rethinking that we're doing now is in response to material realities that are beginning to hammer us. And so we have new theories because we have new realities that we're becoming aware of. So, yeah, Fred is um, he's amazing and inspirational. And I, I was very proud to be able to dedicate this book to him. There's a, a book or two of his that's dedicated to me, and it's certainly one of the more important mental relationships of my life. I mean, I've rarely seen him in person since he left UC San Diego, but it's always exciting and we keep in touch. How do you describe Marxism to somebody who doesn't know much about it? Wow. Um, <laughs> well, let's see. It's a historical moment. There was a guy named Marx. The insistence that Marx made was that the way that we act, the way that we feel, are predicated on how much power we have in our society and that in the world as it's grown up since the Middle Ages, the, a system called capitalism came into place where the power relation system of feudalism, where there were kings and there were peasants, and there was an enabling class that helped the kings to stay in power, soldiers, administrators, all that got transferred into the modern world and made more flexible and liquid. Uh, so it didn't depend on land so much as it depended on money. But there's still kings, there's still peasants, there's still a gross discrepancy between the power and comfort of the kings and the power and comfort of the peasants. And the kings are living off of like macro parasites. Uh, one one Marxist historian called them. You have micro parasites like like the pandemic that's killing us. You have macro parasites that live off of us like vampires. Vampires are the image of that in our popular culture. And so this power gradient is um, this exploitation of a minority over a majority is unstable. It can't last. The majority doesn't like it. They're going to rise up at some point and knock the powerful minority off their seats of power and seize the power and distribute it to everybody equally. That would be the preferred result. And it has to be remembered that Marxism was a 19th century philosophy. And I would say to people, if I was really explaining it for the first time, that Karl Marx was two things. He was a historian and he was a science fiction writer in that he predicted a future or called for a future and talked about the future as if he could say what was going to happen next. As a historian, he was one of the greatest historians we've ever had, and we all use his insights all the time, even if he gets denounced. As a science fiction writer, he's the same as all the rest of us, because we're all science fiction writers. In other words, no good at it. Um, you can't predict the future. The future he predicted in the 1870s and 80s did not come to pass. And so when we use his thoughts now, when we talk about Marxism now, it's a kind of set of tools of thinking about history or a basic set of axioms about that power relation I was talking about. And in terms of the future, we have to, again, make the hopeless attempt to call for our own new futures from the moment we're in now and then try to enact them and try to get to the best one. So that would be like my opening four minutes of talking to somebody about Marxism. Yezra Klanchel will be back after a short break.
one of the really, really interesting and provocative threads of the book, and it's something I'm often obsessed with, is this question of violence and climate. One of the key themes is that there is a role for asymmetric violence in the need to upend the power relationships leading to climate destruction. Um, but what have in the past get called eco-terrorism, but on, on a massive scale. And it's a big part of, of what happens in the book. And even as I was reading it, I kept thinking about, well, why does one see that as eco-terrorism or eco-violence and what is being done um, by companies, by nations, by even individuals right now to change the biosphere does not get framed, does not get called eco-terrorism or violence. But I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about under what conditions you think violence is the appropriate response to the kind of violence being done to the, to the biosphere. Well, Ezra, you have put your finger right on one of the toughest parts of this book and of my thinking about this book. I'm nervous and squeamish about it. I don't like it. And I'm going to talk about it anyway, because of course I've had to think about it. And when you read the novel, you can see the novel squiggling under the pressure of this question that you asked. I would say never. I mean, I personally, as a prosperous, middle-class, white, American, bourgeois, suburban house husband, would say best if there was never a violence, rule of law, change the laws, get it done by the discursive battle. You convince enough people to get a working majority in the governmental systems and your political representatives, you make them do the right thing by force of numbers, and the discursive, persuasive battle and get it done that way. And I truly hope that actually happens, that that's the course by which we get to all this. So when I wrote about the violence that happens in the novel, I did it because I think it might happen despite my own personal wishes. And I wanted the novel to be true, not to my wishes, but to the world situation right now and be honest in my feeling for where we're headed or one very likely scenario. Because I wanted this novel to present a vision of the 21st century going relatively well and yet still be something that the reader could believe in. And it seems to me that we are responding so poorly to the dangers of climate change. And there are such powerful forces entrenched and wanting to keep burning carbon, that stopping them might take more. And, and certainly there's going to be people traumatized and immiserated and angry who are going to say, damn it, it's time to take action, time to resist. So you could regard, you know, the American Revolution as a successful act of political violence, of terrorism. I mean, a revolution has often been physical and violent. And then sometimes revolutions have been invisible and peaceful. So one would hope for the peaceful revolutions. But if you want a true revolution, which is really just say an overthrow of the current dominant order, and the replacement of it by a, a different order that's hopefully dealing better with the problems at hand, well, then you have to think about revolution and what they've been in the past, what they could be now. Can you uh, reap the benefits of a revolution without having to go through the horrors of a revolution? Can you avoid violence? 
So, so these are questions in the novel, and you can see the novel flailing and dodging in an attempt not to make a statement in support of violence, but fearing that it's going to happen, and so it therefore has to be maybe uh, channeled or maybe used to, if people are make that choice, can they do it in a way that actually has an effect rather than a horrific blowback, etc. So, yeah, I, I mean, I can't tell you how much of my... 2019 was taken up um, worrying about these very questions. I can only speak as a, a reader of the novel, and, and it's really not for me to, to tell you what it says, but it didn't read to me as flailing around that question. I mean, one thing that was striking about it was it felt like it weighed in very strongly on that question, and that one of the ideas in the novel is that being what some of the, the characters in there would call functionally like a climate criminal needs to be made unsafe. And that perhaps violence has not worked well, ecoterrorism at other times, because it was too traceable. It was too easy for the state to crack down on it, too easy for it to put the people in jail, because it has to be too physical. You have to be there. But as a science fiction writer, something that you bring up is that violence is getting easier. It is getting less traceable. You can do it by code. You can do it by drone. And so violence will become more effectively asymmetric. And as it becomes more effectively asymmetric, that might change the balance of power of who is able to use it well. And you would not need that many people to be committed to this course of action for it to become quite potent. But it, it seemed like a very, like a very foundational plank in, in sort of the novel's vision of how of how that power structure might come to rethink itself. Yeah, I, I confess that's a very scary description that you just gave. I mean, I think anybody listening to that ought first to be frightened. But also, doesn't it quite well describe American governmental policy over the last 30 years with the signal exemption of when we decided to be less targeted and skillful than that and went into Iraq? But starting with Clinton and under Obama you see the notion that violence needs to be exerted. And we're going to make that moral choice to go ahead and kill people. And this is extrajudicially, and it's under the aegis of the state. So the state monopoly on violence is held, and, and the people doing it are going to be saying to themselves, I am now a representative of the state rather than an individual church-going person. And as a representative of the state for the good of the constituency that, you know, put me here, I'm going to kill some people because that will be better in some kind of utilitarian moral calculus than if I don't. It's going to save lives. It's going to whatever. So when that goes private, you get into a kind of vigilante situation. And when I think that as disturbing as the state monopoly of violence is, the alternatives often seem worse. And so you, you see the novel struggling with that. There's the children of Kali, there are private groups. Are they governmentally supported? Hard to tell. That's true today also. All these things are happening now. So it, it did not take any great imaginative leaps for me to write this stuff, as you can see when you read it. I'm just taking a trajectory into the very near future that doesn't have to go very far to postulate the things that I wrote about. In other words, you don't need transformative new technologies. You can do it now. And it is being done now. It's a dangerous world, and a lot of people are taking matters into their own hands and beginning to uh, say that, well, violence is okay if you're defending 
humanity. If you're defending the biosphere from a mass extinction event, and there's like 500 humans on the planet who are spearheading the effort to wreck things by continuing to burn carbon, then are those 500 people by their own actions put themselves outside the pale? And if they die, this is one of those, you know, alternative history questions that come up. If you, if they were to get killed, would then the future go better? And since we never get to see any counterfactuals, we never get to see any alternative histories, nobody can ever answer that question. But certainly people often say, well, hell yeah, they would be better. Let's get rid of them. I think it's more systemic myself. I, re- I revert to the idea of rule of law. If political representatives were to legislate a different set of laws, you could make carbon burning illegal or uneconomical to the point it would go away. You could sanction or pr- imprison people who were um, fighting hard enough to wreck the biosphere that they were uh, wrecking the future for our descendants. These could be made uh, legal norms, norms and laws. So yeah, it's on that border. It's, it's in that matrix of the decisions that we have to make, what methods are going to work to get us to a better place uh, 30 years out. I mean, I'm glad you say it didn't seem incoherent. I see the fractures, the, the slippages and the squirming in that book very clearly, because I myself was fracturing and squirming. And so the traces are easy for me to see. And I think uh, a a reading, if you look at the book and you say, well, what did Badim, which is the Ministry of the Future's kind of black wing chief of staff, what did he do? What did his wing do? And you can't answer and the reader has to make their own guesses. Well, that's that's a narrative ploy, right? That's a it's in some ways that's a way of making it an entertainment by making it into a detective novel in which you, the reader, are the detective. What did Badim actually uh, uh, initiate, and what happened independent of him in a in a world of chaos? So that was one of my modes, and I and I actually think it was a very successful strategy because it turned a moral squirming on my part into a detective story entertainment on the reader's part, I hope. One of the things that was an interesting feeling throughout the book is recognizing that there was a book happening alongside it that I wasn't reading. <laughs> and and <laughs> yeah, where you, yeah, I often yeah. was like, well, I'd love to read the, the, the Bedeem book here. But I, I want to ask this question from, from looking at the lens the other way, because something that becomes very clear and is brought up as attention in the book is the way violence is visible, discernible when it is conducted against the status quo and not by the status quo. And, and you have Badim in a conversation with with Mary, one of the main characters, um, and and when he reveals that there is some there is some amount of violence happening beyond her her visibility. And she says, how could you possibly do this? What, what the hell's wrong with you? And he says, I'm going to quote here. No, you you have to stop thinking with your old bourgeois values. That time has passed. The stakes are too high for you to hide behind them anymore. They are killing the world. People, animals, everything. We're in a mass extinction event, and there are people trying to do something about it. And you call them terrorists, but it is the people you work for who are the terrorists. How can you not see that? And I think that's a real challenging piece of rhetoric there, this, this question of, are the people who, you know, 
get to be secretary of state in the Trump administration? Should they be understood as the terrorists and the criminals of our, our age? And then what does it mean for those of us also who drive cars, who live at Western standards? I know a lot of people in the climate movement don't like to individualize the questions, but I'm not sure from the future it will look all that. These, these distinctions will be also brightly drawn. So I'm curious how you think about how you how you understand the violence being conducted on behalf of the status quo and who is culpable in it and how it should be morally judged. Yeah, well, thanks for that, because that helps me. And I think it helps clarify the larger situation, too. Sometimes this this gets called slow violence. I think that might be Rob Nixon, but in any case, it's a general term now. It's structural, systemic, and part of capitalism. It's legal. In other words, you can do it and lives are devastated, immiserated, and people are actively killed, and it's legal. It's just the workings out of the laws that exist. So the the Secretary of State, as grotesque and horrific as the results of his decisions are, they are legal decisions. And that goes for CEOs of carbon-burning companies and so on and so forth. But the violence in our legally constructed system is so bad. I mean, the suffering's already here and the resistance is beginning. And it does need to be named as such. So that's what I appreciate in what you said. And I have to remember that myself. Our legally mandated system that we all live in and are, I would not say so much complicity in, that's, complicity is a Ian Banks word and it's a powerful word, but we've, we've given into it. We are it's hegemonic, and we have failed to object in our political lives enough to get the laws changed. And so there are some people who are taking, as I say, violence into their own hands. But since the legal system is violent against many people and the world, which is, say, the biosphere, well, resistance is is justified and even necessitated, or else we're going to get into a mass extinction event where everybody suffers, even the 1%. And, and it is a fantasy on the part of the 1% to think that, well, I'll give up on trying to make a just world. I'll just protect my own, and my fortress mansion will do it. It won't do it. And that's what they need to realize. That's what part of my work was in this book and elsewhere to part of the discourse of battle is to convince the 1% and the people now fighting so hard for the current unjust and destructive system to realize they are not going to get out of it alive. The kids aren't going to get out of it alive. And that sometimes registers with people that it's unsustainable what they're doing and that everything needs to change. If you can make enough people realize that. And really what you need there when I say enough people is just a working political majority. I'm not convinced that you can talk people into things or persuade people. People are pretty locked into their opinions. So what you need is the young and um, the powerless to take what power they can to work the political system to force change on our political economy. And that's another thing that comes up in the book that I, I, we have to uh, be sure to talk about is that, okay, there's, there's going to be so much anger that there's going to be violence, but what can you do about it at the legal level? And what kind of political economy could come out of the one that we're currently in? And I was very intent to make this a novel about finance, about money, 
about how capitalism becomes post-capitalism through the tweaking of the laws that exist by a perfectly legal system of political representation and legislation. So you get the carbon quantitative easing, which is probably the main plot of the novel, at least in in its positive sense of what does one do out in the open. So in other words, Badim has this black wing in the Ministry of the Future. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know how effective it is. Mary is right out in the open, visiting the central banks and trying to convince the central banks of the world that they need to create a carbon coin where people get paid for doing the right things rather than making a profit for doing the wrong things. So you make a living doing the right thing. And then anyone making a profit in this world is really exploiting the biosphere to squeak out that profit by way of deferring costs and hiding costs that are going to come later. So capitalism is a Ponzi scheme, and it's crashing. So, okay, what comes next? And that's where I got into my um, the main plot of Mary, who's the one that's out in the open. And the, the line that you quoted, which I'm glad that you did, this is the crux of the novel. Mary is kidnapped for a night, and it's a night of eventually turns into, say, Stockholm Syndrome and and Lima Syndrome, which is the opposite of the Stockholm Syndrome, where the kidnappers develop a sympathy for their hostages. That night was the crucial crux of the novel and changes Mary, and then she tries to do what she does. She's an Irish woman. That's on purpose. I mean, my mom was a descendant of Irish. She's Irish-American, and I did it for her. But also, the Irish know that violence eventually just sickens and embitters everybody and that there needs to be the legal changes out in the open as well as the ugly secret killings. So as an Irish woman, she's committed to legal reform, to change out in the open that everybody agrees to because the discursive battle gets won. And um, I, I, although the other stuff is more shocking, but see, this is typical of narrative. Uh, we go to the explosions to the violence because in the movie that's what you do you wouldn't go into the meeting room with 10 bankers and convince them that um, the only way they can stabilize interest rates is by saving the world that's a different story well i start with the violence actually and, and believe me um given what i do for a living i have a lot of questions about the the central bank narrative um the, the, and they're all coming but the reason this book had a big effect on me is i sit around all day asking what is going to make the political system act in a system that is clearly not acting. I think about this on everything, but I primarily these days think about it on climate change because I think the chance that in the current context, and I mean that even if Joe Biden and Democrats win the Senate and, and, and all of that, that the world acts on the scale needed at the time frame needed is zero. I think it is zero. And so the question then becomes, what changes the context, if anything? So you can imagine this optimistically. We invent the amoeba that you know eats all the carbon, and you know we're we're, we're all done. Um, that's not that likely. Then that the other thing that I think about a lot, and I've talked about it on the show before um, in some of the climate conversations, is the way you put it here, which I think is really helpful, is what happens in the moment that slow violence crystallizes into fast violence. What happens in the moment that this slow violence being done to the planet and its inhabitants becomes something undeniable and enough people die all at once or some kind of dramatic thing happens all at once that it's not arguing over a hurricane, but it really is arguing over a war crime? And how do people respond to that? What happens when war mobilization isn't a metaphor, but it is a response? 
And to me, that's actually the, the inciting event of, uh, of the novel. Slow violence becomes fast violence. And so a country begins to respond as if it has been attacked and it begins to operate. And many people operate under the rules of war. But war changes finance systems too. War changes technologies too. And, and so that's where I think it gets really interesting. I don't imagine the central banks doing what you imagine them doing without that event. But with that event, Maybe things do change. With fear, maybe things do change. And I, God knows I do not want to be advocating for violence, but I also don't want to be advocating for the status quo. And so it's in that very messy space where I think your science fiction is allowed to live in a way the political writing can't live because it isn't happening. But logically, you have to assume it will. Yeah. Well, that clarifies a lot for me. And uh, I think it's true what you say. When the slow violence becomes fast violence. The government of the nation state where it happens first will be put on a war footing. And I'm thinking something I mentioned in the novel. During World War II, the British Treasury simply commandeered the Bank of England. So these public banks, this is something that's very mysterious to me at first, are public slash private combinations of private bankers gathering together to make a public bank that isn't really directed by the democratic process, but by a private technocracy of bankers. And then during World War II, the situation was dire enough that the British government didn't trust the Bank of England, which is one of the first of these private public collections of money, and said, no, actually, we're going to make the decisions for you at this point. So I think that by analogy to what you were saying, when we do go into an emergency footing, like a war footing against climate change and realize that we've got to act or the entirety of civilization is screwed. And the pandemic, by the way, has given us a, a little precursor dress rehearsal of what that would feel like in terms of life changing, even for prosperous middle-class people. At that point, finance might get seized by government and then you need a plan. And that's where I, there's a section there in the novel also that you don't want it to be a secret plan, that you don't want to not have a plan. So it's true that one of the things I can do in a novel and in science fiction, which says I'm going to set a novel in the future and you're going to like it anyway, or you're going to like it specifically because of that, that speculative aspect being part of the pleasure, there'd be a new story there if the writer is clever enough. That in that context, you can begin to run scenarios or modeling exercises. This is very common to all of us. Every human models their own future and says, well, if I do this, I'll get to that and that'll be good. Or when you're scared, you're saying the stuff I'm doing isn't enough and I'm going to a bad place. And so modeling is part of human cognition, um, imagining different futures. So science fiction is very natural to human thinking. And in a novel set in a, that kind of science fiction speculative thinking, you can say, well, let's try to run it so that things turn out relatively well compared to what it looks like it's going to be right now, given what we're doing. Like, in other words, what will we need to do now and in the next 10, 20 years to get to a, a good outcome? And that's a great exploratory space. And I guess also something else that you said very much um, sparked me in me when slow violence turns into fast violence that is visible that's where i did my eyewitness accounts more or less and the book is just stuffed with fictionalized eyewitness accounts from the next 30 years where people are telling you and what i found is that the eyewitness account is a genre in itself 
And maybe it is indeed the genre that talks to real people about what did you see when slow violence or something invisible, systemic and social like history itself suddenly flared up in your face to a a crisis on a day, uh, something where you had to see, do something or see something. And those, there are collections now of eyewitness accounts. And what I decided was they don't really work. An eyewitness account is not a dramatized scene like you would see in a novel. The person telling it doesn't bother with setting up the details of setting or what you ate for breakfast that day or whatever. It gets right to the point of what was crucial in what they saw. And it's a witnessing. So when I found that genre, I was able to throw it into the context of the larger novel. And it's just exactly what you said. It's those moments where the the system became visible in a moment of usually a paroxysm, a social paroxysm, you know, like what happened in our town when the water ran out? Well, that's going to happen. Cape Town, South Africa was just a, a couple of weeks from that happening. And there would have been a response to try to keep people alive. And we're likely to see what that looks like. And so I was able to uh, try out all these things. Desert Clown Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. I'm glad you brought up the Bank of England in World War II because, so I had Zach Carter, who just wrote the the great Keynes biography, Price of Peace on the show a couple months ago. And something that comes out of that book that's really, really clear is the degree to which Keynesian economics is an ideology, or you can even say like an economic technology that emerges out of war. I mean, it is a response to war. It is a response to what is seen during war, the values that change during war. It doesn't just come out of a study. It comes out of a history. It comes out of a moment. And this book is very much about economics as a discipline and the story of money and the way we have have, have set it up. And, and I would say that the, the critique made is that modern economics, neoliberal economics, you can call it, is fundamentally recursive, that, that it has its own subjective framework and it only allows critique within that framework. And, and I want to read a passage of the book on this. You write, one often sees inequality as a problem judged economically. Growth and innovation, it is said, are slowed when inequality is high. This is what our thinking has been reduced to, a neoliberal analysis and judgment of the neoliberal situation. It is the structure of feeling in our time. We can't think in anything but economic terms. So what kind of economic, what kind of structure of feeling do you think will come out of or could come out of the kinds of biosphere disasters that are coming? I love this. Keynes was crucial. And whether or not his ideas were entirely formed by war, I'm not so sure. There was also the Depression, but that came out of World War I, and he was very involved with the post-World War I political order. And so one way you could say this is that economics as a discipline is the study of the already existing system of capitalism. So economics is capitalist, and economists are usually accepting all the axioms of capitalism and then trying to understand how that is working out, and then suggesting tweaks to that system without ever challenging the axioms. Many of the axioms are 18th century philosophical positions that it turns out that social science and social biology suggest are actually wrong, or they emphasize one aspect over the other in a way that's distorting and flawed. 
So what you get to is political economy. And what's interesting about Keynes is that he wasn't just an economist. He did political economy like in the 19th century. Things could work differently. And he pointed out that government is crucial. And since it set the boundaries in the first place for the so-called free market or liberal economics for capitalism itself, it could change capitalism by fiat, by laws and by manipulation of money within the legal system to create a system that had elements of socialism, but in any case was government-driven and centralized rather than just relying on individuals and the market in the way that the previous political economy did. So Keynesianism is indeed a threat to the free market system. And in, in the Reagan-Thatcher free market moment where the market was valorized above government and government was seen as a problem and just an impediment to the good running of a society, well, this was ridiculous and it's indeed what we're living in and that has rebounded on our heads so badly. So a return to Keynes is partly what modern monetary theory is all about. Let's get back to the power of government to insert itself into the economic system and by democratic control, hopefully, but in any case, political representation, the political system says economic can work better if it's not strictly capitalist, but has these elements of the social compact imposed upon it. That can be really small scale, like in Scandinavia now, social democracies. It can be larger scale, like democratic socialism. Uh, then you get uh, all kinds of post-Soviet type uh, state control from above that, that where the government simply seizes capitalism and uses it as a tool, like in China, to a certain extent in Cuba. And all these variants are using Keynes's insights. And mo what modern monetary theory is trying to do is make sure that we understand better that the government, having created money in the first place, can point money in the direction of what kind of work we do. And so in MMT, the two important things, uh, and they're Keynesian things, is the creation of new money for targeted work that the government decides what to do rather than giving it to private banks and letting them loan it out as they will for the sake of profit. And secondly, uh, very importantly, and this is a little bit post-Keynes or a, an advance on his thought, that there should be a job guarantee. It's somewhat like you know the New Deal's uh, Work Projects Administration that if you're out of work, you can go to the government, ask for it, and get a job, and that everybody can do that and that the pay that you get for that job is a living wage. Well, that would change everything in a good way, because if everybody had a job and everybody had a living wage that wanted one, private business could no longer exert wage pressure, which is simply fear in the heart of working people that they're going to starve. So some of these capitalist economic terms, when you unpack them to their human meaning, you'll see business texts saying, well, wage pressure is very important and a good thing. It's efficient. And then you don't do the translation into the lack of health care, the suffering in crappy little apartments, the death that comes from it, and the immiseration. So wage pressure would go away if there was a job guarantee that the government would give you a living wage. And there's lots of necessary work. I have to speak to this as a science fiction writer because there's this kind of uh, vision of automation taking away all the jobs and, and nothing for humans to do. That's a fake vision. That's a non-happening thing. Certain robotic jobs that are done by humans now, because humans are very good robots, are going to be taken over by actual machine robots, and those jobs will go away. Those were always inhuman jobs. It's fine that they go away. There's still going to be 
8 billion human jobs and probably more like 10 billion with only 8 billion people to do them. In other words, there's more good work to be done than there are people to do it. If they all could make a living at it, we would be, uh, and it's all uh, coordinated towards doing biosphere restoration and justice work, which is to say housing, healthcare, and, and education, et cetera. Well, you can imagine a, a positive result out of the situation that we're in now. So almost hilariously, Keynes turns out to still be important. He's both a capitalist economist and he's a powerful political economist uh, doing political economy. Um, it's an unfortunate aspect of our language when you say economist and you say political economist, you're still using the word economist. Maybe you could say political philosopher. I mean, he's a great he's a great political philosopher. As yes. you know, and people make this point as a lot of the economists were. I mean, Adam Smith is fundamentally more of a philosopher than I think we should understand him as an economist. But I want to go into into a deeper part of this for a minute and 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 put the MMT stuff. The one thing I want to note is that there are MMT people who are Keynesians and MMT people who are not Keynesians, and and there's a lot of ambiguity and disagreement in, in that world. So I, I don't want to shorthand too much of it. One thing that you really push in the book, which I really appreciate, is functionally money is a story. The story needs to have internal rules at work for it to be sustained, for there to be trust and predictability and people to be able to plan action. But I feel like the the really interesting thing you do here is just say it could be a different story than the one it is. And it could just have different rules. And that's where you combine two sort of ideas that I think will be a little familiar to some people and then, and then pretty unfamiliar to many, which is quantitative easing, though in this case with a, a carbon component, and the blockchain as technologies and in some degree stories that you could add to money that would change the way it works pretty fundamentally. So could you talk about that? Could you talk about that sort of different money structure that you envision and, and where that comes from? Sure. And it, and it does trade into troubling grounds in a couple of different ways. One I'm not talking about cryptocurrencies that are uh, like Bitcoin that are privately made. I'm talking about fiat money that governments make up and back from senior edge, the process of minting money in the first place. So it's that level where we saw quantitative easing in after the 2008 housing crisis and also immediately after the pandemic began. Money was, in, in essence, extra big tranches of money were in, evoked out of, out of nothing and tossed into the system to help keep the economy going by infusions of new money. So that's quantitative easing. And, and let me just add one thing on it just for people. So what they did was they made a bunch of money and then spent it to support certain ends, right? In this case, stabilizing the housing market. So you, they actually were spending it. It was just inside the financial markets. Yeah. And like the feared inflation and things didn't happen. So, I mean, it's a real example that you can create money for ends, use them, and at least in some conditions, um, it does not destabilize the system in any way. It's been totally fine. Right. And that was um, something that would have been contested before. So it's good we have that example. It is also true, though, that the private banks were supported with the idea that as long as the banks were doing fine, the rest of the economy would, it was kind of a, a version of trickle down, keep the banks alive, because if banks fail, people will get really scared and we'll have a panic and we'll have a depression. But those banks then just hoarded that money and lent it for the usual stupid ways. I mean, they continued to support fossil fuels and subsidize fossil fuels in a way that's destructive over the long haul. 
they were just as stupid as they'd been before when they were, uh, they're gamblers in effect, and they gambled and they lost, and then we bailed them out without any sanctions and without any redirecting. And to a certain extent, that happened again in the pandemic, although what you see now in the European Union with their green reconstruction is the notion is becoming stronger and stronger that these quantitative easings ought to be targeted to good work and not just given to the same bad private capitalist actors that have already blown it repeatedly in the past. And this is where carbon quantitative easing comes in. The idea would be that the the new money created by the treasury so that it's real money that everybody trusts, not private money that people are just gambling on like Bitcoin. This real money would be paid first and even created in the first place for the good actions of sequestering carbon. And I mean, that's a rubric. The reason that people choose like if you if you put a ton of carbon in the ground, you get a carbon coin. If you don't burn a ton of carbon that you own, you get a carbon coin. It, it needs to be indemnified. There would be a big agency going around and measuring this stuff. But that's true of uh, bond agencies now. It'd be another kind of bond agency measuring whether you're doing what you said you did. And then you'd get a carbon coin that's tradable on the open market with other currencies. And it would have to be backed by the central bank to keep speculators from making a run on it that would devastate it. So the world would have to agree to this and then people doing good work. And this would include regenerative agriculture and the way that you ranch your cattle. This would include what kind of behaviors you had in your home life, what kind of car you bought. All of this would then become part of the financialization. Part of the economy would be saving carbon would help you to make money rather than costing you. Right now you do a virtuous action. Well, I'll buy an electric car or I'll put solar panels on my roof. Well, um, that's going to cost you. But in this shift of the system, effectively Keynesian, not very radical in its underpinnings, but if you started paying people for doing good carbon things rather than bad, then you could afford to do it. And not only that, but you could make your living doing good things rather than wrecking the biosphere to make your living. So this is the turn that's imagined in the novel as as being fundamental to our uh, going forward in a good way. So, so I want to I want to pull out a couple things here because I think this is so I, I, I found this really, really interesting and provocative to sit with. And the first thing I want to do, because I have a I have a very I don't know how much you know the show, but I have a very wonky audience and, you know, people listen from the Fed and, and elsewhere. And I think this is actually at some level the same conversation we had earlier about violence which is to say that if you imagine any kind of disruptive change to the system, it falls very strangely, right? You can, like, if I tell you that somebody is going to begin using drones to attack tanker ships and gas pipelines because of uh, the, the effect they're having on the climate, you'll say, well, that's terrorism. You can't have that. And if I tell you that people are currently destroying the climate of the earth in ways that will cause tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of deaths, I mean, well, that's just what's going on. And so it doesn't look that weird, even though it, it's happening. And and this is a bit of that same quality where if you step back and you just explained to an alien that the way our economy works is you get super rich right now by doing things that upends the habitat in ways that destroy the conditions for our comfortable lives. Like, you think that's completely yeah. insane. It's much less insane to say that we would restructure money such that you got paid for doing things that make the planet more habitable. In fact, you'd probably imagine that is how it works. It just isn't how it works. And so 
it is a like you can get very caught up on the details of like how you would make any kind of disruptive shift. But to me, what's really helpful about it is just it's also just a way of reminding us that the current way the economic system is working is crazy. And as much as imagining other systems is complex and creates all these kinds of questions and it would have drawbacks and you sort of, I would say, like sidestep questions like inflation and deflation in the book um, is sort of who can know. But what we do know right now is that the current system is leading to unchecked climate change. And we can look at that and say that will lead to more war and more death and more pestilence and more famine. And yet we're just kind of continuing on. And so I think we're recognizing that the system we live in is constructed, but it has just ended up being constructed in a completely insane way, is freeing. And while change is going to have problems, this gets to the other point about the violence. Like the way your the way your story works is that people begin to imagine a new system, not now, but in response to the entire thing destabilizing under climate pressure and certainty and the kind of conditions that have made this economic situation work dissolving, which does not seem to me to be all that unlikely, seems actually quite predictable over a long enough period. And again, if you don't believe it, like look around us at coronavirus, like this is not as bad as it's going to get. Yeah. Well, one thing that you said that sparked in me is this notion of making you see the the current system that one takes as a given or is somehow natural as unnatural. In science fiction, we this gets called cognitive estrangement, and it comes out of Brecht the estrangement effect is for you to go in and for the work of art to make you look at your own situation as if you were an alien looking at it. The view from Mars uh, has been my most famous estrangement effect. And Brecht always did that in his theater by directly addressing the audience and having such strange plays where the naturalism goes away, realism as a literature goes away because realism is taking as a given something that is unnatural and is now highly destructive. And also it's a kludge. I mean, nobody planned capitalism. It's always been a reaction and a kind of power play that managed to make itself look natural. So making it look strange, making it look destructive, calling it a Ponzi scheme, which I always do, which gets people to think about how, although it might look legal, it actually is highly destructive because it What it does is it takes its victims out of the future, beats them up, and profits in the present. Well, that's capitalism. And sometimes it's a a joke that I say that the world economic system is illegal in the state of California because it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a way to try to do that cognitive estrangement moment. And then you do have to have a plan, a replacement. It could go better if we were to do this. And it is important, I think, to point to things that can be done right now that aren't so radical that they require you to leap across a, an untheorizable gap to a new system. So that's why the book also uh, focuses in on law, on, on current money, on the central banks, and on tax systems. I mean, you could imagine, Piketty has been transformative on this, you can imagine a better world being instituted entirely by tax structure, progressive taxes. That get back to what you said, and I can pick up the thread on blockchain. Blockchain is is a peculiar, hard to understand system. Yes, it is. I don't claim to myself. <laughs> yeah, having tried a couple of times. <laughs> yes, and and me too. And I can say only this: it's best thought of in terms of cryptography. It manages to put a tag on everything. If money was tagged and we knew where it was, A, 
you can imagine, oh my God, that's so Orwellian. B, you can imagine there can't be people hiding money from the legal taxes. There can't be mafia money. There can't be money slushing around that is empowering illegal and even violent action against others. If all money was trackable, then you could even imagine the people of the world saying that that money there is owned illegally. We erase it from the books. It's gone. Um, And so you get into a social compact that might create more trust rather than less. Why should people trust money now when they know full well that a lot of the 1% is simply taking what they've made, and although it was legal, then they hide it somewhere and don't pay even the taxes that are due on it, which are too low anyway. So in other words, trust in money is weakened, grossly weakened, and then trust in society is weakened by cheating on money and by the way that too much money can be accumulated by individuals that didn't do any more work than anyone else. So the exploitation in capitalism, the accumulation of capital that has almost a gravity, where the more you have of it, the more gravity you've got to grab more. I mean, it's I've always remarked on the, the weird imitation of physical law that happens in our current money law. If you were to change even the tax laws, it would be like changing the, the laws of monetary gravity, releasing it, weakening it, and trying to uh, horizontalize it so that everybody's got some, and, and that what you do in your life gives you a living wage for everybody, but that nobody gets to go off into billionaire land. So you could just simply tax them out of existence. And these are just laws that are on the books that get changed all the time. There are huge fights, of course, over even small tax changes. But if the discursive paddle were won, if there was a working majority saying, forget about it, we want fairness, we want uh, more justice, we want more sustainability, we're going to change the laws so that those get created. You see precursors in Europe in this this green reaction to the uh, pandemic. You see it in the plan for the Green New Deal that's been proposed in the House of Representatives. And you see it in the Paris Agreement with all the nations of the world agreeing to cut their carbon use no matter what it costs. And then we share the, the burden of that cost equally. These are all precursors that I tried to pull as threads out of the fabric and emphasize them in my own postulated future history in this particular novel. I want to actually take that as an opportunity to move over to to one of those other threads, which is geoengineering. And again, and I don't think I realized quite how much I understood the novel this way till we began talking, but this is another place where I think you're doing the same thing you did with money and, and, and violence, which is to say, try to make it look stranger what we are doing than what we might do. <laughs> and I do urge people to go back and listen to the geoengineering episode of this podcast from about uh, the climate series a year ago. But geoengineering is this term applied really to any technological efforts we we want to deploy to reverse climate change, but is not deployed <laughs> to the technological regime we are currently operating in creating climate change. We don't call all the cars we have and the, you know, the 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 oil we're burning geoengineering, but of course it is. It's just not being done to a purpose. But you push back very strongly on what I often think of a kind of lefty environmentalist skepticism of geoengineering. And, and you sort of argue, we're, we're in this world, and so we may as well operate in it. Do you want to talk a little bit about how geoengineering plays into the book and into your thinking? Sure. And thanks for that. It's important. I'm a leftist myself, and I see all around me the pushback against the idea of geoengineering, which has been reified. It, it, 
It's no longer an idea, it's a thing. Reification turns processes and actions into things and immovable objects. And geoengineering is now understood to be the bad things that we might do to try to escape climate change without changing our political economy. And as such, that would be bad. And many of the geoengineering schemes look like they would be uh, have potential subsequent dangerous side effects or knock-on effects that would be worse than what you were trying to cure, et cetera, et cetera. So I know the line, but what I've been saying all along is what you just said. We're already geoengineering. It's just accidentally and badly and creating damage. If we were to orient it towards positive work, then it might be something that we are forced to do by the desperation of the situation that we might get into in the next few decades. So it has to come back on the table. And then I want, this is another kind of cognitive estrangement, I talk about women's rights as geoengineering. And I mean it in this sense, the number of humans on the planet are part of the impact on the biosphere. And if there were fewer humans then although this is also something that people are very wary about talking about, the impacts would be less simply by force of numbers. So you don't want to order people around. You don't want population control. All these terms from the 80s and 90s are clearly bad ideas. But everywhere on the planet where women have their full set of political rights, uh, property, education, legal rights, the population replacement rate drops below 2.1, which is the 2.1 kids per woman is the stable rate. Below that, you have a population going down. Above that, you have the population going up. And you have seen in places like Thailand or the prosperous half of Mexico, uh, changes in the situation, the status of women, the legal rights of women. Within one generation, the replacement rate will go from like four or five to 1.6. And in all of the advanced industrial countries, the replacement rate now is below 2.1 because in the ordinary course of a modern civilized life, it is simply going to be the choice made by families and by women in particular that having more than two kids is expensive in both time and money and psychic energy, and you don't have time for it. So when I talk about women's rights as a geoengineering technique, what I want to do is blow the black box apart where geoengineering is just solar radiation management. Anything civilization does at scale is geoengineering. And therefore, we got to put that concept back on the table. And if we get into a situation where we have wet bulb temperatures of 35C and people are dying by the millions because vast areas of the earth have become uninhabitable, then even solar radiation management is going to come back on the table. And what I've been saying lately is we're in an all-hands-on-deck situation where everything that we can do to mitigate the damage of climate change, because I'm not an adaptationist, the idea that you can adapt to a 3 see global average temperature rises simply false. We can't adapt. It's going to kill us. It's going to wreck civilization. We're going to end up killing each other too. So we need to mitigate. And every possible mitigation should be on the table and fully discussed. I mean, and this gets to somewhere where I think one of the scenarios of the book is very plausible, which is that it is often noted that a lot of the solar radiation geoengineering techniques could just be done by a single country. 
And if a big enough country experiences a big enough climate disaster in, in, in the story of the book India, but it could be others. I mean, China is another good potential example here. Um, and even America, they might just decide enough of this. The fact that it's not affecting you all as much as it's affecting us is not a reason for us to abide by treaties that you're not following, right? As in, say, the case of the Paris Climate Accords. And so you end up in this situation where a lot that's coming may be asymmetric. And, and this book is very much a book about geopolitics, among other things, and that there's asymmetric responses among countries, asymmetric responses among groups within countries, within political parties within countries. But there's a, a, a line um, in the book, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going to get it wrong a little bit from memory here, but but it, it did spark something in, in me, which is you had uh, someone from India discussing how little patience he has for those who criticize India's decision to do geoengineering in this imagined future. And he says, well, you all haven't been to hell and we have. And something I kept thinking about with that is like it's climate change is going to create a real inversion of the old William Gibson line, which is that hell is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Um, and this is coming. And I don't think people are prepared for how it's going to affect um, geopolitics at all. Yeah. Well, I've always enjoyed William Gibson's work. You know, he's a contemporary of mine and a powerful thinker. But his phrase the future is already here. It just isn't evenly distributed. I always thought, no, I mean, that's cute, but it's wrong. It's the money. The money's already here. It just isn't evenly distributed. And that's, I think, the point we have to seize and hold on to. Because the future's never here. The future's always absent. And that is both its advantage as a thinking tool and its disadvantage in that we never really are there. We're always in the present. So he was being cute. And, and it's, a, it's a great slogan. But the money's already here. It just isn't evenly distributed. And the problems follow from that, including that feel of the future that is what Bill was talking about. What he really meant was you go to Tokyo and, oh, my God, you're in the future because everywhere else is going to get there to Tokyo-ness. And so that's what he meant by that. And I think uh, it's a valid observation. But the way that you can put that observation to use is say, well, where does this sense of the future come from? It comes from vast accumulations of capital. And that's where we need to spread the capital out because capital is different from capitalism. There's always going to be capital, um, accumulations of value or the useful residues of human labor. These definitions of capital are things that are going to exist forever, like there will always be economics, like there will always be money. But it could be better distributed. It could be more evenly distributed. That horizontalization of power has to do with uh, spreading out more equally, or not redistribution, but pre-distribution of the uh the useful residue of our labor so that everybody gets some of the value that everybody has created together. And that, I think, is the leftist goal put in what you might call monetary or abstract terms. But I want to hold this in, in the reversed way, because I, I think this is an important thing to, to your book and, and to the future you build here, which is, I think you're correct in this, that before there'll be enough pressure to truly reallocate the capital we're going to unevenly distribute hell on earth, that there are going to oh, be yeah. countries that exist under the pressure of disasters that are right now unimaginable, right? I mean, you use um, heat bulb waves as an example here, which could eventually hit America too. I mean, I live, we both live in California and the fires have just become 
I don't know, like for a couple months here, you live and some people really live inside a hellish scenario. You can't breathe the air. Your home might get burned down. People die. But there are all kinds of places where you can go through all kinds of things, sea level rising, island nations going under. And as this happens, different countries are going to react with unbelievably different levels of alarm. And so you're going to have this world which, to just use, say, the world that, that, that you construct, in which say, an India demands that more is done now, everything on the table, and a Russia or China or an America or someone else who, for reasons both of money and perhaps of, of, of how their climate is distributed, do not feel that pressure, you know, fight against it. And I just really do wonder if the climate wars aren't coming, if that, if that isn't something that we have no real diplomatic capacity to handle. And uh, again, when you think about what could really upend the system, it, it, it's that. Yes. So true. I mean, we're in a nation-state system, but we're on only one planet together in one civilization. So the political system we have devised or evolved or fallen into is nation-state, and they have to agree with each other by international treaty, but there is no international sheriff. So you abrogate the treaty, and there's nobody that comes after you, and the rest of the international system would all have to agree. And as you say, there's that part of the world that is between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. It's not the uh, only endangered part by any means, but it is truly endangered by the heat wave problem. And I have to quickly say that it's a combination of heat and humidity. When high heat and high humidity hit together, the human body can't handle it, and we will see mass death. You could only survive it by being in air-conditioned spaces, and the power grids are not powerful enough when there are big demands on power. So these things are coming down, and it's a strange political system we have evolved to deal with it, because like you say, mass suffering in areas, other areas are going to feel like they're in cooler parts of the planet, and they're prosperous, and they're powerful, and they're going to say, well, too bad. And then they're going to get overrun by refugees and by their own problems, because take the United States, for example, the the southeast, one of the highest heat humidity temperatures ever recorded was in the Chicago area, so on and so forth. And California with drought and fire, the American West is, is in terrible trouble too. In short, the whole world is in different kinds of terrible trouble because it is just one planet. And that's where I have to keep coming back to the Paris Agreement. It's not as if only committed and aware leftists are aware of this problem. In fact, of course, people are at the sharp end of the sick, stick are really suffering already, and they're quite aware. But I mean, amongst, uh, say, prosperous people, everybody's still aware of it. The Paris Agreement was written. A lot of diplomats fought like crazy people to get climate equity included in the diplomatic language of the Paris Agreement. And all the nations of the world signed on that there should be climate equity, meaning the biggest carbon burners, the richest countries that are escaping, they uh, tend to be more northerly, or that they will pay their fair share, which means more than the suffering poor countries that are at the sharp end of the stick. Climate equity is in the Paris Agreement also. And this Paris Agreement is a crucial event in world history, and it should not be dismissed just because it's weak-toothed. It could turn into a League of Nations type story. A League of Nations was a good idea. It failed. We got World War II and the rest of the 20th century. Paris Agreement, it could happen the same way. But if we were to make it stick, stay engaged, and make the Paris Agreement be the international matrix by which all the nation states negotiate uh, paying for dealing with climate change and doing the work, 
Well, at least we've got it. I mean, it sounds to me with the Paris Agreement 2015, if you had postulated in, in the year 2000, you would simply have been writing a, a utopian science fiction novel. But the real world did it. Can you just explain why technically you see it that way? I think people who know it, they mainly know we've pulled out of it and like a bunch of countries agreed to a target that was non-binding that maybe most of them didn't hit. But you see it as a framework that can create a different kind of action. Can you just talk a little bit for a minute as we as we come to a close here about what it is in the Paris Agreement that you think can be what what it could be a platform for what people maybe miss about it if if they've not dug into it that much? Well, all the countries of the world agreed to try to reduce their carbon burn. Um, they set weak targets for themselves that were voluntary, and not all of them have been met, but some of them have been. It's a complex picture. And, and here's what happens in our culture. People black box a impression. So you say to yourself, oh, that person uh, in the 19th century was a racist. Or you say, uh, oh, the Paris Agreement was a weak-tooth failure. But on the other hand, you can't withdraw from the Paris Agreement. There's no formal mechanism. The United States even hasn't done it yet. Despite our crazy president's statements, we're still part of it. And hopefully, we'll still be part of it going forward. It's the platform for international discussion. And even though if we had done everything right under what people had agreed to under the Paris Agreement, we would have only cut half the amount of carbon that we have to cut by the year 2040. The first half might be the hard half. And in any case, it, it indicates a commitment that if the Paris Agreement didn't exist, I would be much more pessimistic because we need a platform to even have this discussion. So right now, the Paris Agreement stands for the idea that if we wanted to, the world's nation-state system could get its shit together and deal. And so uh, to dismiss it, these, these facile and ignorant dismissals, like um, this is a kind of a, we can end with a kind of a rant against easy cynicism um, and pessimism and doomism. Oh, it's too late. We're doomed already. Well, that's absolutely not the case. From the point that we're at right now, 30 years from now, we could be in a quite better climate and biosphere relationship. And stuff we do now still matters crucially. It's really prosperous people in, on the internet in that airless world that you get this kind of, oh, well, we're doomed. It's a, it's a mask of the red death. We might as well party because it's already over. And it's only really prosperous people who aren't suffering, aren't immiserated. But now with the pandemic, I mean, the precariat, um, we're kind of all there in the same boat. And what needs to be held on to is, is faith in science and faith in people acting altruistically and in a sense of mutual aid. There's more of that going on than we're usually uh, uh, going to pay attention to because it tends to happen under the radar. Right now, our lives may depend on it. So I would just say keep an open mind and keep a, a kind of faith that the Paris Agreement meant something important. I think that is a lovely place to end. So let me ask you, it's always a final question here, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Well, I can say that I recently wrote a column about this for The Guardian, where the the kind of climate books that I've recently read that I recommend, I've, I've got some recommended there, and I won't go back into that again. It's it's not new. I would I want to talk about novels, and and these are actually novels that have an application to what we're uh, what we've been talking about. So these are other novels like my novel Ministry for the Future. I mean, they're not at all like it in 
form and content, but they have that same spirit of trying to come to grips with the moment we're in now. I liked Barbara Kingsolver's, I think it's her most recent novel, Unsheltered, and Prodigal Summer is also about these issues. Kingsolver's great. Jonathan Lethem is going to have a new novel out in a week or two called The Arrest, which is about uh, exactly what do we do going forward and thoroughly delightful. And then I just finished uh, getting into, and this is uh, Frederick Jameson again, making recommendations because he loves to read novels also. Tokar Zook, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature a couple of years ago, she has a novel called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, which is a William Blake line and a kind of an animal rights novel in a peculiar detective story kind of way. Um, these are three great books. And I will put a link in, in show notes to your Guardian column recommending some comic books. Your book is a ministry for the future. Um, I cannot recommend enough that everybody check it out. It had a huge effect on me, and there's so much more we couldn't cover here. Kim Stanley Robinson, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Ezra Klein. Boy, that was quite a uh, session. My, my brain is spinning. <laughs> Mine too. Thank you to Kim Stanley Robinson for being here. The book, of course, is The Ministry for the Future. I, I, I can't recommend it more than I do. Get it. Thank you, as always, to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Gell for producing, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Hold up. 